0: It's your love that makes me see On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word.
1: As we continue our study through this epistle, our text this morning verses 3 through 6, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, if you'll follow along, beginning now in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, two weeks ago, we began looking at chapter 4, where we transition from Paul's main doctrinal teaching in chapters 1 through 3 to his practical instruction in the rest of the book in chapters 4 through 6. And you'll remember, Paul began in chapter 1 with the words, I therefore. And the word therefore refers back to the entire first half of the letter, chapters 1 through 3. And it indicates that the practical instruction that follows is based on the doctrinal truths that Paul taught in those first three chapters. And so in chapters 4-6, to Paul is going to build on the foundation that he has laid in the first three chapters, and he's going to tell us now how to live out the spiritual realities that have been given to us in Christ. In verse 1, we have Paul's introductory statement on the Christian life, which he describes as a walk. If you look at verse 1, he says, I therefore, or in light of all the glorious doctrinal truths in chapters 1 to 3, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And as you'll remember, the word walk simply refers to how you and I live our lives. It speaks of our conduct, our behavior, our day-by-day living, our habitual way of life. And so Paul is imploring us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling because a person's calling sets the standard for their conduct. And so in light of the fact that we have been called by God into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we are now to live in a manner that is consistent with who we are in Christ. We're to live in a manner consistent with our dignified position as a member of the body of Christ. We're to live in a way that adorns the gospel and reflects the glory, beauty, holiness, and the great privilege of being a child of God. And essential to walking worthy of our calling is a life characterized by four vital attitudes, four character qualities that should mark the life of every single believer. And Paul says, he says, I want you to walk worthy of your calling, and I want you to do so, in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And as we said last time, humility is the most essential virtue in the life of a Christian. A person who is not humble can't even be saved because salvation begins with us humbling ourselves before God and admitting we're a sinner. It's a defining mark of a true Christian. It's it's thinking rightly about ourselves. It's seeing ourselves in light of who Christ is. And then gentleness, sometimes translated as meekness. Whereas humility is an attitude of of mind, gentleness refers to the outward manifestation of a person's humble demeanor. And this word combines strength and gentleness and is often described as power under control. And then patience. Patience. It's an outgrowth of humility and gentleness. The word patience can be translated long-suffering. And so it it means the ability to suffer long under difficult circumstances or relationships. It's, It's the ability to endure through adversity. And then lastly, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another literally means that you put up with someone, but not in an exasperating way, but rather with a sense of genuine love and genuine compassion. You bear with them in love. It describes the patience that we should have with the failings and and different ways of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It it means bearing with someone's shortcomings or quirks. It doesn't mean turning a blind eye to sin or or tolerating sin. Rather, it simply means giving the other person room to be different in non-moral areas. So as believers, we are to act toward one another with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Why? Because this is how God in Christ has acted toward us. And who are we to act any different toward our brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, what an ungrateful person would do that. In fact, we could say that failing to practice these gospel graces toward one one another actually puts a large question mark over our Christian profession. So that's where we left off two Sundays ago. Verses 1 and 2 set the stage now for all the exhortations that are going to follow, beginning in chapter 4, verse 3, all the way through chapter 6, verse 20. And, and And that section in this section, it, we're going, Paul is going to flesh out what is involved in walking worthy of our calling in the church and in the various community and household relationships. And so Paul now begins a series of exhortations that extend throughout the second half of the letter. And the first is an exhortation to maintain unity. I mean that is, that is paul 's particular concern. In chapter 4, verse 3 through verse 16. Spiritual unity in the church. And the Word of God puts a premium on unity among believers. How do we know this? Because Jesus prayed for it in John 17 just before he went to the cross. In fact, John 17 is one of the two classic New Testament passages on the subject of Christian unity, the other being our text here in Ephesians 4 so there could hardly be a more valuable teaching uh, when one of the primary problems in the church today is conflict, strife, and division. So we are to walk worthy of our calling, manifesting these four characteristics that Paul has listed, but to what end? To what end? Well, Paul tells us in verse 3. Look at verse 3. And there, here, Paul exhorts us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says we are to be eager. And this word eager adds a a great sense of urgency or or even a sense of crisis to it. It speaks of doing something with intense effort and motivation to work hard, to do one's best, to endeavor. In fact, it means that we are to spare no effort. And the tense of the word tells us that it is a call for continuous, diligent effort. Activity. In fact, one commentator said, It is hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in this word. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, sentiment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. This word excludes passivity, quietism, and a wait and see attitude. Yours is the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You are to do it. I mean it. Such, he says, are the overtones in this verse. And so Paul says we are to be eager to maintain. And the Greek word for maintain means to cause, to continue, to retain, to keep watch over, to to keep guard over. It suggests vigilant care. And so Paul is exhorting believers to eagerly, continuously put forth a full, intense effort to maintain, to keep, and guard with all vigilance, unity. And the Greek word translated unity refers to a state of oneness, or a condition of harmony that can only be experienced among members of Christ's body, the church. And so we're talking about a unity of believers Not a unity with unbelievers or heretics or an apostate. Unity in the church. And you'll notice that Paul is not exhorting us to create unity. Nobody has to create it. But rather we are to continuously put forth intense effort to maintain the unity that already exists because of the finished work of Christ. This unity is something that comes from or is produced by the Holy Spirit and what He has done in bringing us together. It's the unity of the Spirit. And Paul spoke of this unity in chapter 2 when he spoke of the reconciliation God has accomplished between Jews and Gentiles corporately through the work of Jesus Christ. He told us, from the two he, Christ, created one man so that Jewish and Gentile believers are joined together as one and and belong to a new corporate entity, the church, the the body of Christ, and together we have access in one spirit to the Father. So we are now fellow citizens in Christ's kingdom. We are children together, brothers and sisters, members of God's family, joined together as a holy temple, a, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so this unity, this oneness of which Paul speaks is a reality in the life of every single believer. All true believers are one because we have been made one by God's Spirit. All those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are one body in Christ and individually members of one another as Paul said in Romans 12 verse 5. All believers are one in Christ. Whenever sinners are saved by grace and born again, they are baptized or immersed or placed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, and they are made one with Christ and with other believers. I mean, all believers share the same new life in Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12:13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. I mean, that is the common identifying mark that is true of every Christian everywhere. By grace through faith, we have believed in Christ, or you could say we have believed into Christ, and thus we are united to everyone else who has believed into Christ. We have a common Father, a common salvation, a common destiny. Christian believers are one in Christ. Believers are, or Christ, excuse me, Christ is by the Spirit the great bond of our union. And Paul explains this unity, this oneness in in 1 Corinthians 12 by using the analogy of the body. Christ is the head. And we, by virtue of our union with the head, are joined to the body, joined to one another. We belong to one another. We are part of one another. It's a spiritual union because it is the union of the twice-born. It is the union of all of those who have been joined to Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual unity. It is not an organizational unity. It is a spiritual unity. It is is an organic and functional unity. It is the same kind of unity that the Father has with the Son. A unity which allows for diversity of persons while maintaining essential unity. In other words, as the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and thus the two are one, so all believers are in Christ. Because of our unity with the Son, we are also one with the Father and one with each other. And so Paul here is not urging the Ephesians or us to produce a unity or create a unity or to arrive at a unity, but rather to keep the spiritual unity that already exists in them and in us through the work that God has done. And at this point, it's important for us to to understand that the unity uh, Paul is speaking of is not by any stretch of the imagination an ecumenical unity. In other words, where all the different branches of Christianity come together under some man-made organizational structure without the essential elements of the faith as the foundation for unity. When that happens, essential elements doctrinal truths, things like the the inerrancy, infallibility, and authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, and salvation by faith alone, all those things are sacrificed just to get along. But that is not true biblical unity in the way the Lord has intended it, and Paul is teaching it. That is not a Christian unity at all, but rather it's a worldly unity. I mean, Paul is not teaching unity at any cost, but rather a unity in Christ. It's a spiritual unity, and therefore it is a unity based on the revealed truth of God's Word. Listen, without truth there can be no unity. And so the unity Paul speaks about comes from God and is created by the unifying presence of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be enacted or brought about by any human organization or denominational organization. It is the unity of the Spirit. It is His work. It is something the Spirit does in us. You see, the purpose of Christ's work is to create in Himself one new humanity in the place of prior divisions, you know, one new entity, one body. And this is so vitally important, as I alluded to earlier, that on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus prayed to the Father that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. That all believers, he said, may be one, so that the world may believe that the Father had sent the Son. And that we may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that the Father sent him and loved us, even as he loved the Son. That's how critical and important this is. And when our Lord Jesus prays that those who believe in him through the gospel may be one, he's not praying that we'll become one. He's praying for the practical outworking of the supernatural unity that already exists. He's praying that our oneness, our unity, which has already been created by the gospel and by the Spirit, will actually be lived out by His people in such a way that it reflects the glorious oneness and unity of the Son's relationship with the Father. And this this oneness, this unity of those who are believers in Christ, is to be observable. In other words, it's to be lived out so it's visible to the unsaved world. Because you see, this unity we're talking about is so otherworldly, so supernatural in character, that when it's seen in the church, it powerfully testifies of the presence and the power of the resurrected Christ in his church. You know, it's not hard to get people from the same economic, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds to work together uh, in a group for a common cause because they already share a similar heritage and values. But that's not the way it is in the church. No, the church is made up of people from all sorts of different economic, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds who hold to different values. And so how do you get such a diverse group together to live and work in harmony with one another on a voluntary basis? Well, it can only happen if they share something in common with one another which is greater than all their differences, greater than themselves and greater than all their differences. You see, all of those who truly believe in Jesus Christ can work in harmony with one another because each shares a common faith, each shares the belief that Jesus is who he claims to be, and they submit their lives to him. The life they share in Christ, their common faith and commitment to follow Christ is greater than all their differences with one another. And that is why the oneness and unity of believers in the church is such a powerful testimony to the identity and the nature of Christ. So nowhere in the scriptures are we told to create Christian unity. Christian unity is a fact. But this doesn't mean that we are not to exert effort for the sake of unity. Paul doesn't want us to try to create unity where it doesn't exist, but to rather realize the unity all believers have and to put forth maximum effort to maintain that unity and then to manifest it in our relationship. Well, how in the world are we supposed to do that? Well, as he says in the first two verses, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's how. I mean, we can't create this unity, this, this oneness. But by the grace and mercy of God, we can maintain it by being humble and gentle with patience, bearing with one another in love. But sadly, as we all know too well, this unity is a reality that can be easily marred and fractured by our pride and our arrogance, our selfishness, our self-centeredness, and our disobedience. And sadly, There is not a more divided church on any continent or in any era of church history than there is in the United States today, and it is nothing short of tragic. Practically every, well, I would say every city has its stories of church splits, and some of them are legendary and over the most ridiculous things. One that I've shared in the past, I'm not going to go into the detail, uh, began Uh, with an, an elder receiving a smaller slice of ham than the young person ahead of him in line at the potluck. That led to a church split, which led to a lawsuit between the two factions to see who got the property, and it made the headlines in and around Dallas, Texas years ago. That's what the world sees in the church. We all know of church splits in this city, this area. And that's not the way God intended for it to be. But on the other hand, there are many Christians who have beautifully maintained the unity of the Spirit, even in a divided Christian world. For example, John Wesley and George Whitefield. They had a very different theology and and, and struggled to maintain their friendship and fellowship as a result. However, by and large, They spoke of one another with respect and affection and were always able to acknowledge the Lord's work in the other's ministry. So you see, we need to make sure, each one of us, that we're not the cause of strife, contention, division, unnecessary clashes and conflict in the church or between other believers because Christ himself prayed that the oneness of his followers would be a witness to the world. We are to treat fellow believers as the brothers and sisters in Christ that they are. And woe to the man or to the woman who who trifles with the body of Christ and causes trouble in the church. We're to treat fellow believers as the brothers and sisters in Christ they are. Augustine said of himself and his Christian friend, Alipius we were washed in the same blood. And that is true of you and I and every other true believer. And our behavior toward one another and toward other believers in other churches should actually demonstrate that. In the words we speak, the affection, uh, the affection, interest, respect, good we show, even to believers we have disagreement with, should demonstrate that we are one in Christ Jesus. And the world will notice. The world will notice. It, it never sees that otherwise. Never. But we are to make sure the world does see it where it ought to see it, in the church. And certainly they won't see it perfectly here or or anything like perfectly in any church. But they should see it in the church. And Paul is telling us here that you and I, as believers, are responsible for that. And you'll notice that Paul says the unity of the Spirit is to be maintained, look, in the bond of peace, in the bond of peace, that is, in the bond which consists of peace. One man wrote, Unity and peace are two of the central achievements of Christ through the blood he shed on the cross. God has created one new man in Christ, thus making peace. Christ is our peace, who made both groups one. The peace that Christ has given is like a rope that ties believers from diverse backgrounds together into a unified whole. And Peace is the bond in which our unity is kept. And of course, behind this peace, according to Paul in Colossians 3.14, is love, which he says, binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so as we seek to obey Paul's exhortation to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit, our our oneness in the local church, as well as as in our wider relationships with other believers, the peace which Christ has won, and which binds Jews and Gentiles together into the one people of God will be increasingly evident in our lives. One man said the church's spiritual unity is to be visible. God wants the world to see the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He wants his church to reflect in its life on earth the perfect unity that defines the life of the Holy Trinity. This is our high and holy calling. The church is more than an aggregate of saved sinners. It is the family of God. It is the bride of Christ. It is the one body of Christ. It is the dwelling place of God. Public, visible unity is not a luxury Christians can ignore. It is a gospel imperative they are to pursue and spare no effort to maintain. God, our Father, desires, like all fathers, to see his children living peaceably and harmoniously with one another. Jesus' words to his disciples should never be far from our thoughts. By this they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The church is unified and God is glorified when we live with such Christ-like conduct. So let me ask you this morning, I mean, where, where is the eagerness for unity to be found among evangelical Christians today? I mean, is this a command we're guilty of largely ignoring? Because I tell you, it just seems that, that so often that, that people, the primary thing they are concerned with is themselves. And their, uh, their preferences, their opinions, their desires, their wants. And they value that more than they value the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's all about them. Well, that's not the way it's supposed to be in the church. It's not about us, it's about Him. So is this a command that we are are guilty of largely ignoring? Because I tell you, there's enough of the flesh in every one of us to wreck any local church or any other work of God for that matter. So what do we do? Well, we die to ourselves. And we bury our own petty personal preferences, whims, and attitudes, and we work together in the bond of peace for the glory of God and the blessing of the body of Christ. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And now after exhorting his readers to maintain the unity of the Spirit, Paul celebrates the basis of our unity in verses 4 to 6, and he does so using seven one, O-N-E, one statements, to emphasize the oneness we share in the gospel. And So here are seven eternal realities which we possess along with all true believers everywhere. Seven things that, that all believers share, regardless of denomination, location, age, worship preference, or any other things that might divide orthodox, Bible-believing, evangelical churches. And as we'll see, you know what we share, what we share in Christ is immeasurably greater than what differentiates us. And so it's just not logical. That we should live in any form of disunity. These seven eternal realities are spelled out for us in verses 4 to 6. Here, here, here then is the basis for our unity. Let me read verses 4 to 6, and then we're going to come back and, and go through each statement one by one. Notice verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So first of all, Paul says there is one body. And of course, Paul is referring to the church. Uh, and he refers to the church in a number of different ways. God's house uh, and temple, the bride of Christ, but his favorite uh, is the body of Christ. There is one body. He said in Again, in 1 Corinthians twelve, thirteen, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So there's one body. There is just one body in which all believers are incorporated. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, young and old, all of these otherwise conflicting types of people have been placed in one body, the church. There is one body, there is one church. There was never meant to be the old people's church and the young people's church. I mean, God did not establish a a rich people's church and a poor people's church. God did not have in mind at all a black church and a white church or a traditional church or a contemporary church. There is one body. God's church is one. Yes, there there are many individual local churches and, and many denominations, but there is still only one church. There is one body of Christ. And there can't be more than one church any more than there can be more than one Christ. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Again, Romans 12.5. There is only one body of believers, the church, which is composed of every saint has trusted or will trust in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. We all share a common existence in Christ's church. We are united as one, but we are diverse in our backgrounds and gifting. And so this means that we have unity, but not uniformity. It's not what Paul is talking about. Uniformity. And that is why it is just a huge mistake. A massive mistake for churches to insist on Or pursue uniformity where, you know, people feel pressured to dress the same or to make the same education choices for their children or to listen to exactly the same music or to worship and pray in exactly the same way. As one man said, God's kingdom is not a factory pressing out carbon copies. Instead, we are all individuals, but indwelt by the same Spirit, possessing the same life within, walking together along the same path to the same destination. This unity with diversity brings beauty and glorifies God. That's exactly right. So we should not expect everyone in the church to be exactly the same. People will respond differently in worship. I mean, for instance, some are very quiet and even very still. Whereas others are more emotional. Some fold their hands in their lap. Others raise their hands. Different people will want to serve in different ways according to their differing gifts and experiences. We're all different. The body of Christ is diverse, made up of all kinds of people, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, differing levels of education, different professions and different personalities with differing gifts and abilities, where we're all united as one. There is only one body of believers, the Church, made up of all true believers, from Pentecost to the Rapture. And there is one body. Next, he says there is one spirit, one spirit. One spirit refers, obviously, to the Holy Spirit. According to John, 1 John 4, 1-3, there are, there are many false spirits, but there is only one Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And up to this point in Ephesians, Paul has said that believers are sealed with the Spirit, have access to the Father through the Spirit, are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, are strengthened in the inner man through the Spirit, and are graced with the unity of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who gives new life. His first work is to convict and enlighten, and then he regenerates and places the new believers into the body of Christ that indwells and seals them. I mean, the Spirit dwells in every believer, And that's important. The Spirit dwells in every true believer. Paul said in Romans 8-9 that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so the indwelling Holy Spirit distinguishes the genuine believer from someone who merely professes to be in the church. One has the Holy Spirit, the other does not. That means one has spiritual life and the other does not. All those who share new life in Christ do so because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now look, believers may be misinformed about the Spirit or completely ignorant of Him. They may grieve Him, which we all do from time to time. They may sadly distort what the Holy Spirit says about Himself and and His work. They may go to all kinds of excess, but He patiently continues to indwell them. When man wrote, the Holy Spirit brings God's word to life as it is heard and read. He comes to us when we pray. He lives in us and leads us as we seek to obey Jesus Christ. Excuse me. We know the Spirit is present not necessarily when we have some excitement, not when we are filled with self-satisfaction, but rather when we forget about ourselves and are absorbed with the glory of Christ when we long to be more holy, and not the least when we are promoting unity and peace in the church. The Holy Spirit is the one who also gives us power to live for God. So this means that if we want unity, we must seek the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives since our unity is through Him. Well, how do we do that? Well, it's not through some weird experience. We seek the Holy Spirit through God's word, which the Spirit inspired, and by praying for the Father to send the Spirit. To continually fill us with the Spirit. You know, Jesus concluded one of his parables on prayer by saying that even if sinful human fathers are willing to grant their children's requests, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? There is one body and one spirit. Thirdly, Paul writes, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Well, this takes us back to chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. There's a general call of the gospel that goes out to all. But there is the effectual call of God that, that opens our hearts to respond to the gospel with saving faith. And it is this call that saves us and unites us into the one body through the one spirit. And because of this call, we share the profound experience of redemption, salvation, union with Christ, and also a common, glorious future with all other believers. When Paul mentions the one hope that belongs to your call, He is referring to the future aspect of our salvation. The second coming of Jesus Christ when we will be changed totally to be like Him and share His glory. You know, Paul refers to Christ coming as the blessed hope in Titus 2.13. John says that when we see Jesus at His return, we will be changed into His likeness. And then he adds, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. See, in the Bible, hope is not uncertain as we often use the term today. You know, we'll say something like, well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, which is just, you know, wishful thinking. Biblical hope is not like that at all. Biblical hope is absolutely certain, but not yet realized. It is certain because God has promised it and he never fails to keep his promises. We just haven't experienced it yet at this point in time. And although there are mockers who scoff at the promise of Christ's coming, God isn't slow about his promise, as Peter said. And when he comes, we're going to be caught up to be with him forever. And those who reject him will face the sure and certain wrath and judgment of Almighty God. And so all true believers share the hope of, of eternal life, which is centered on Jesus Christ, who is our hope. I mean, that's, that's a common vision of the future that all Christians are expected to share. But how ironic that one of the things that divides many Bible-believing Christians relates to end times events. You know, will there be a millennium? Will Christ come before the millennium or, or after the millennium? Is there a rapture before the tribulation? Is it pre-trib or is it mid-trib or post-trib? How will it all pan out? And people have divided the church of Jesus Christ along those lines. They have made eschatology a test of fellowship. However, this should not be. Eschatology is an important subject. Don't get me wrong. And I have my very strong views about it. But it is non-essential in terms of salvation. And therefore it is one of those issues that Orthodox Christians can agree to disagree on because there are good and godly men who disagree on these issues because there's more about eschatology that we do not know than what we do know. But all genuine Christians are united on this one fact. No matter what their view of eschatology, they're all united on this fact, that Jesus Christ is coming back bodily in power and glory. On that we agree. And so even in the midst of our differences, all of us share a common hope. Eternal, sinless, painless, deathless joy in the presence of God forever and ever and ever And loved ones, we should emphasize these glorious truths that unite us rather than the minor issues that divide us. And so whatever our present differences, we believers are united by a certain future that we will share in a glory, a hope that is ours together in Christ. Look, I mean, we're, we're travelers on the same path and journey together. We're partaking of the same spiritual food, trusting and obeying the same saving Lord and looking forward to the sure hope of glory that lies just ahead, that city whose, whose has foundations and whose designer and builder is God. And the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit now is the guarantee of all that will be ours in the future. Fourthly, there is one Lord, he says. One Lord, which clearly refers to the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body and the Lord of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things and through whom we exist. All true Christians have been saved by grace through faith in the person and work of the one Lord, Jesus Christ. And that is an important point, a very important point. Because to hear some Christians talk, you would think that there are many Lord's, You know, one says, well, I follow a Jesus who causes me to do this, and that excludes you. Somebody else says, well, I follow a Jesus who allows me to do this or that or or to live in this way. And still others say, well, I don't follow that Jesus at all. That's not the Jesus I know. And so on and on it goes. And what you really have are people following a Jesus that they've imagined in their own minds, a Jesus who doesn't even exist. Because the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to live according to his word. So I'm here to tell you that there are not many lords. There is one Lord. And that Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're truly following him, it should be a force for drawing us together in unity with other true believers. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is one, he is the one Lord who rules and reigns over all his believing people. He's not one Lord for the Baptists, another for the Presbyterians, and another for Bible churches. He is the Father's one and only Son, the one Savior of the world, the one way, truth, and life. And everyone who by grace through faith trusts Christ as Savior and Lord not only has an obligation to recognize all other believers as family, but also to openly acknowledge that they are family. You know, Jesus sternly rebuked his disciples for trying to stop a man casting out demons in his name because they said he doesn't follow us. You know, he's not part of our little group. I mean, they couldn't see beyond themselves. You know, they were denying that this unknown man truly belonged to Jesus, denying that their Lord was his Lord. They were, in effect, defining Jesus' Lordship by their own little categories and opinions, limiting it to their own little circle, their own little group. Kind of like us twelve, you know, shut the door, no more. But if there's only one Lord, then there is, then Jesus is Lord of everyone who serves God in His name, whether they belong to us or our group or not. If they are Christ, and, and remember, we're talking about genuine believers, not heretics and apostates, not false teachers. We're talking about genuine believers all throughout the world and in many different denominations who love Christ and are His. If they're Christ, They're family, and they must be treated as family because the one Lord, Jesus Christ, insists upon it. He insists upon it. One commentator wrote this. During the Protestant Reformation, one of the most useful groups was known as the Moravians. These gentle believers generally got along with all the other Protestants and were greatly loved. While the Moravians were sound in the gospel, they had numerous errors in secondary matters of theology. But their character was summed up by their leader, Count Zinzendorf, who said, I have one passion. It is he, and he alone. You know, how well that attitude compensates for many secondary errors and mistakes. If we all were focused on our one Lord, Jesus Christ himself, not on our vision of church success or on spiritual experiences or on this preference or that, but Christ first and always, then we would have a unity and the loving peace he alone can give and most of our problems would pale into significance. I could not agree more. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. And all who believe were chosen in him. We were redeemed by him. We follow him. It is under his lordship and his alone that we live. We are going to be with him. And so, loved ones, I ask you this. What possible basis then can we think of disowning true believers? Only unity is logical. Number five, one faith. And here, one faith does not refer to the subjective act or experience of believing, but rather it refers refers to the objective content of what is believed. In other words, Paul is speaking of the body of essential Christian truths. As Jude said in verse 3, the faith, the body of doctrine, which was once for all delivered or handed down to the saints. That is, the the basic Christian doctrines concerning the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the person and and work of Jesus Christ, the God man who died for our sins and rose from the dead, and and other core essential teachings that unite all Christians in the same revealed truth. I mean, all Christians are united by one faith. There is not one faith for Jewish believers and another for Gentile believers. We are all bound by one body of revealed truth, the faith. There are not many legitimate Christianities. There's only one true Christianity. And even though different churches, denominations, and believers have different perspectives and interpretations regarding non essential matters, again, meaning, of course, that they're non essential to salvation. All orthodox evangelicals agree on the essential truths and revealed in Scripture which we must believe and we are called to defend. The the people who believe the gospel are very diverse. But there is still only one gospel, one faith, and where this faith is present, true Christianity is present. Because, you see, the faith does not scatter true believers, but rather it joins them together in unity. Number six, there's one baptism. And you know, although many commentators attempt to determine whether Paul is stressing water baptism or spirit baptism, the, the, the two really can't be separated in the Apostle Paul's thinking. And so there's a twofold sense in which Paul's statement is true. First of all, There is one baptism by the Spirit by which those who put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation are at the moment of their conversion immersed or placed into the body of Christ, baptized into the body of Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit makes you a member of Christ's body. That is the spiritual reality. And then there is water baptism. And water baptism is the outward and visible sign of what has happened to you inwardly and invisibly. In water baptism, believers are publicly acknowledging their identification with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And they're expressing their allegiance to him and a determination to walk in newness of life with him. And in water baptism, they are also publicly identifying themselves with the, with the local church. Every believer, if they're a genuine believer, has received the spiritual reality, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In New, Test- in New Testament days, every believer had also submitted to the outward physical sign of water baptism. And every believer today, is also to submit to the outward sign of water baptism. Why? In obedience to Jesus Christ, who said to do this. And so how can people who have all declared their death to self and their allegiance to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have identified with the local body of believers, how can these people then live as if they were members of of warring factions. How does that happen? Only unity is logical. And last, Paul concludes the sevenfold basis of unity by declaring, notice verse 6, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One God and Father of all. That does not mean that God is is the Father of, uh, of all men everywhere. Paul's talking about the church. That's the context, the church. Paul is speaking about the fact that God is the Father of all believers. He's our spiritual Father. So the church is not only the body of Christ, it is the family of God. And in that divine family, there is one Father who is over all and through all and in all. He is over us all in a personal sense as our sovereign Lord. He is through us all in the sense of working through us. He is in us all in the sense of personally indwelling us. We are his dwelling place in the Spirit. The one Father is over all and through all and in all. You'll notice Paul uses the word all four times. Why does he do that? Because he's trying to emphasize the common unity that we share with all true believers. And so God is the father of all believers. We are brothers and sisters. If he is over all, then we all submit to him as our sovereign Lord. We hold his word as the authority for faith and practice. If he is through all, then we must trust that he is working through our brothers and sisters in Christ as well as through us. We are are not his only servants. He has many other servants in many other places. And if he is in all, then we must respect our brothers or sisters' experience with God and see God in them. And so I ask you then, how can there be a Jewish church and a Gentile church? How can there be a church for blacks and a church for whites? How can there be a church for the cultured and a church for the uncultured? How can there be a a, a cowboy church and a non-cowboy church, or a biker church and a non-biker church? How can there be a church for the haves and a church for the have-nots? How does all of this happen? Because there is one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. You see, the theology of the Bible compels us to refuse every attempt to divide the church on the basis of ethnicity, culture, education, wealth, or anything else for that matter. Because God is one. The Father is one, not many. God's church is one. And yet Paul is compelled in our text by the Spirit to implore us uh, he, he appeals to us, he, he urges us to keep the unity, the spirit, and the bond of peace. Why? Because indifference to the visible public unity of the body of Christ is a mark of spiritual immaturity at best and spiritual ignorance at worst. The one Father, the one Lord, and the one Spirit require all Christians to do all they can to promote the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And, we're, and, we're, and again, we're not talking about turning a blind eye to sin or tolerating sin. That, that's not what this means at all. And this type of, this type of unity in the Spirit, and the bond of peace, isn't going to just happen. It takes the greatest effort and resolve on our parts to be to other believers what God in Christ has been to us. That's why Paul implores us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul could not have been more clear If there are differences between Christians, and of course there are, there are non-essential doctrines that Christians disagree over and will continue to disagree over until Christ returns. In addition to that, we have different temperaments, different gifts, different experiences, different convictions, different interests and different pains and scars. So, the one thing we do have in common is that each of us is completely different, right? But, loved ones, our differences, whatever they may be, are not more important than the one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father, which we all share in common. I mean, these are the most important realities in the entire world. And so if we agree on and treasure these things that are most important, what is there that should ultimately divide the body of Christ? You see, loved ones, the unity of the Spirit, gospel unity, is not an option that we can commit to if we feel like it, if we choose to. No, it is the express will and purpose of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is essential to the very message that we proclaim. Because the gospel declares that the good news that through Jesus, God has provided a way of reconciliation with himself, uh, can't be seen if there's not unity. When we don't display uh, to one another the peace that God brings, our message is completely compromised. The unity of believers impacts our testimony to the world. And this is why Paul so strongly urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And again, we fulfill this command by seeking to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so this unity we've been talking about this morning, this isn't just an optional add-on to our Christian faith. This is at the very heart of our faith. Yet, what do we see so often in the church? People breaking away from other believers who aren't living up to their standards. Churches splitting over unimportant, sometimes just ridiculous issues, non-essentials, personal preferences, petty differences. We see Christians separating and shunning another believer over a difference of opinion. Brothers and sisters, we need to repent. Repent of these ways of thinking and deliberately stop these ways of acting. Because none of these things reflect a walk worthy of our calling. None of them flow from a life of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. So this is a real good place just to pause before we end and examine ourselves. I'll examine myself, you examine yourself. Let's ask ourselves a few deeply personal questions. And don't rush to your answers too quickly. You ready? Are you a gossip? You spread rumors? Do you sow discord within the church and the family of God? Do you ignore the major truths that unite us with other believers and instead focus on the minor issues that divide us? Do you quickly lose patience with others? Do you only give to others when you know you'll get something in return? Do you hold grudges, harbor bitterness, foster resentment? Do you deal in hearsay and promote things you have? Uh, whether you have any idea or not, they're true. If we find ourselves guilty of any of these charges, we need to ask ourselves, why do I do these things? Where did we learn this? Because we didn't learn it from Christ. You weren't moved to cause disunity and discord by the work of the Spirit. You didn't become a part of the church's problem by pursuing obedience to God the Father. So, where did this come from? Well, it came from one or more of three sources the world, the flesh, And the devil. And when I find myself guilty of any of these things, I need to reject them. And I need to turn my back on them, just like you do, and make amends with those that we've hurt and harmed, and throw ourselves in upon God's mercy and ask for his forgiveness for rending the body of Christ. No woe to those who would tear apart the body of Christ for their own selfish ends. We need to commit ourselves to diligently maintaining, I mean, with all vigilance, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, thus walking worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And I want to close with this. J.C. Ryle, contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, godly, godly man, 19th century Anglican bishop wrote this. Unity and peace are very delightful, but they are bought too dear if they are bought at the expense of truth. Controversy, in fact, is one of the conditions under which truth in every age, has to be defended and maintained, and it is nonsense to ignore it. And I share that because, in closing, I want us to realize that to apply Paul's words, we have to be diligent to preserve the true unity that exists among all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we have to be careful not to water down compromise or set aside the essential elements that form the basis for true Christian unity. And this is important. We are not one with those who deny or pervert the gospel in any way. We are not one with them. We cannot have fellowship with them. We are not one with those who deny any of the, any of the doctrines essential to salvation. We are not one with them. We cannot fellowship And to act as if we can causes great confusion and harm. And it causes undiscerning believers to to fall into serious error. It causes unbelievers to be confused about what the gospel is by which alone they might be saved. And so to preserve Christian unity, we have to make sure that, that we are founded on the on the biblical basis for unity, the truths that Paul sets forth here in our text. And my prayer for myself and all of you is that God would work these things in our hearts and lives that we might live together in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You know, the unity of the church for God's glory and the blessing of the church. Amen? Well, let's stand and pray.
0: On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at Calvary Bible Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's love.